Part Three, Chapter Two of Canada's Hundred Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesay. Part Three, Chapter Two. The First Battle of Cambrai From the Bois de Bouche, five miles distant, southeast by east, Burillon Wood looms up to view, dark and threatening, precisely as it looms up from any surrounding prospect whatever. Between us lies the valley of the Canal du Nord, with beyond the ground sloping up to Burillon bare save for an occasional little wood such as that of the quarry. Standing on the 75-meter elevation of the Bois de Bouche and facing Burillon, a little to the right and on the west side of the canal lies the village of Inchy in Artois, and as far to the left, 2,000 yards northeast of Inchy, but on the east side of the canal, is the village of Saint-les-Marquillons. 2,000 yards south of Inchy, on the west side of the canal, is the village of Mouers, which not only proved impregnable during every stage of the first battle of Cambrai, but only recently had withstood the assaults of troops of the Third Army on our right. Immediately east of Inchy, a canal stretch of 3,000 yards was still uncompleted and therefore dry. These works are not situated in the valley bottom, but form an embankment on its eastern slopes, and this stronghold is reinforced by a series of lifting locks, each in itself a fortress, from forty to sixty feet in depth, edged by steep banks and masonry, opposite in chief from the top of the east bank, presenting an elevation of about sixty meters, the hill slopes steadily back and up to where at the crest of Burlon Wood it attains an extreme elevation of 110 meters, thus commanding a clear view of all movements west of the canal as far as the Bois de Bouche. All this slope presents for enemy machine gunners a natural glacis, paralleling the canal, running from two to five hundred yards east of it is the heavily wired trench system known as the Canal du Nord line. Midway between this and the summit is the strongly fortified Marquillon line. Over the crest of the slope and back of Burlon Wood is the Marquois line. Burlon Wood is a fortress in itself, its batteries of artillery and machine guns dominating the approach. We are already familiar with the features north of Inchy, the flooded area with all bridges demolished and any attempted crossing entirely dominated by the superior east bank. Impregnable to assault from the west, the chain of villages lying along the east bank, sans les marquions Marquion, and sauchy lestre screened by woods and swamps, and extending north to the high ground of the town of Wassy la vergere has to be reckoned with by an attacking force crossing the canal further south and striking thence eastwards, 
for until this strip has been cleared of its garrison, it presents a highly vulnerable flank. Immediately south of Mouers runs the Beaupalm-Cambrai Road, a first-class highway, though now shell-torn, passing just under the southern slope of Bourlon Wood, through the village of Anu, and thence east to Cambrai, through the village of Fontaine-Notre-Dame, 1,500 yards east of the wood. Three or 4,000 yards further east the road parallels, but at some little distance north, the Scheldt Canal, or to give it its French name, the Canal de Lescaux, and known also south of Cambrai as the Canal Saint-Quentin. A mile and a half north and a little east of Fontaine-Notre-Dame is the village of Raylancourt, situate on the Arras-Cambrai Road. This road, after crossing the Canal du Nord at Marquion, runs in a straight line southeast through Raylancourt and St. Ole into the Faubourg Contempre, where it joins the Beaupalm Road at an acute angle. The combined road then passing east across the Scheldt Canal into the city of Cambrai. 2,000 yards east of Fontaine-Notre-Dame, the Scheldt Canal, which up to now has followed a general northerly course, swings off almost sharp to the east, and then 2,500 yards further on, as it reaches the Faubourg Contempre, turns off again to the north. At the point where it turns east, the strongly fortified Marquand Line, the last organized trench system west of Cambrai, passes from the east to the west side of the canal, and then takes a northerly course just east of Raylancourt, and between that village and Saïli, adjoining it to the northeast. Thence it passes in a northeast direction to a little west of Saint-Cour, where it joins up with another strong trench system running off at right angles west to link up with the Canal du Nord line south of Sauchy-Lestre. Forming a strong pivot of defense, the village of Hainecourt lies at the junction of the Marquand line and this western trench line, 5,000 yards northeast of Burlon village, itself situate against the northwest slope of Burlon wood. Between Burlon and Hainecourt passes the Arras-Cambrai road, and on this line, a thousand yards south of the road, is the considerable elevation known as Pilgrim's Rest. One more tactical feature may here be noted, this being the railway, that after crossing the Canal du Nord at Sauchy-Lestray, winds up the hill through many deep cuttings, skirting Burlon village on the north, and joining the Beaupin-Cambrai road a little east of Fontaine-Notre-Dame, whence it follows the course of the road into Cambrai. There are thus three distinct trench systems, all running more or less parallel to the Canal du Nord in a north and south direction. First, the Canal du Nord line, then, midway up the slope, the Marquion line, and finally, behind Bourlon Wood, the very strong Marquand line. Between these trench systems, the enemy had organized many series of fortified shell holes, protected by spider web wire, and it was in fighting through this maze, 
rather than in the actual storming of the trenches that our heaviest losses were to be incurred in these september days of waiting we are all studying the campaign of the previous november now known as the first battle of cambrai but different indeed are the plans and execution of such operations one gathers from the men who fought them from the stereotyped accounts of the contemporary histories of the war for embalmed in the official reports on which these are necessarily founded are often misstatements of fact and distortions of perspective the patient historian of the future must dig below this surface if he is to discover truth in all her aspects unclouded by prejudice and untarnished by self-interest Burlon wood and the whole surrounding battlefield is to enter so sharply so poignantly into the history of the canadian corps that a sketch of this first battle is an essential preliminary to what is to follow we shall be concerned not so much with its course from day to day as with its general scheme and the reasons for its relative failure after his brilliant success with the canadian corps at vimy ridge sir julian bing received well-deserved promotion to the command of the third army then vacant by the removal of general allenby to palestine it was not in his nature to sit down to passive defense while hard fighting was going on elsewhere and so he evolved the plan of attack which as we have seen in the account of the army in show unsuccessful in result though in some degree it was was nevertheless destined to revolutionize conditions on the west front sounding the death knell of trench fighting and preparing the way for open warfare oddly enough that brilliant plan was not only the germ of our present success but seems also to have supplied the inspiration for the great german offensive of the spring of 1918 struck by the fact that the battle in the north was not going so well as had been hoped sir julian bing in july 1917 came to the conclusion that a diversion on the right flank of the third army might not only draw enemy troops from the north but might seriously interfere with any plans the enemy might have for a counteroffensive on the large scale he therefore laid his plan before the british commander-in-chief asking that his divisions in the line be supported by six fresh divisions, all the tanks and the whole of the cavalry, the idea being a secret attack, unheralded by the alarm bell of a heavy and protracted artillery preparation, as then was the fashion, a rolling artillery barrage and the tanks being relied upon to break down the way for the infantry, while the cavalry were to seize any opportunity of passing through it is to be presumed that sir douglas haig was sympathetic but it was a new idea never popular at g h q and the dreadful fighting in progress on the north seemed to deny the diversion of the necessary troops shortly after this the sixth thirty-fifth fortieth and fiftieth divisions were sent north and for the time being the project was out of the question but sir julian enamored of his idea was not to be discouraged 
and early in the autumn he advanced it again. This time he received encouragement and was told he should have the Canadian Corps for the operation. For just 36 hours, the 3rd Army Commander saw his great plan fructifying with to his purpose the Corps he had done so much to make what it was. When there came the news that the Canadian Corps too was ordered north, Passchendaele destroyed any chance it had of taking part under its old leader in these new battle tactics. After this, a rot set in for our cause. Russia had gone to pieces and Italy was invaded. Divisions had to be hurried to her support from the West Front. But whatever the cause, perhaps because there was need for desperate measures and the plan, while offering minimum risks, held out great prospects. It came about that in mid-October Sir Douglas Haig was finally converted and the Third Army authorized to go ahead with its preparations. Instead of six fresh divisions, however, the battle must be fought with divisions already battle-weary, though all the tanks and cavalry were promised. It is not to our purpose to deal with this very interesting operation at length, except insofar as it has a direct bearing on the Second Battle of Cambrai. The battle opened at dawn of November 20th, so soon as there was light enough for the tanks to see. There was a tremendous concentration of these, no less than 460 being on the line, and the whole attack had been carefully rehearsed, each tank having its track at the jumping-off place marked out with its number, while the troops to follow were trained beforehand to maneuver with that particular tank. These tanks were of an early model and could not cross unaided the Hindenburg line, here 14 feet wide and 8 deep. So the idea was conceived of a fascine or faggots suspended from their bows to be dropped into the trench and over which they climbed up the other side. This plan worked out perfectly in practice. The surprise was complete and for a time everything went well, the barrage jumping from trench to trench and the defense being overwhelmed. But the troops engaged, stoutly as they fought, did not present a heavy enough mass of infantry to accomplish the full purpose, nor as their advance spread out into an ever-deepening salient had they sufficient reserves to defend the line they had won. The general direction of the attack was northeast, in the direction of Cambrai, across the Scheldt Canal between Marnières and Cantang, and through Marquois, and north along the Canal du Nord, with the commanding heights of Bourlon Wood as an early objective. Three possibilities were present. One was the unlimited. That is to say, such a surprise might be effected that the Bosch would be rolled back a considerable distance. The second was that the Hindenburg support line, i.e., that is, the Marquand line, might be captured and consolidated. And the third, more limited in scope, was for a raid on a glorified scale, capturing trenches and inflicting considerable loss upon the enemy. In its result, what was actually achieved lay somewhere between the second and third possibilities. 
At first everything, as we have seen, went according to program. On the right good progress was made, our troops at one point establishing themselves across the Scheldt Canal. But in the center we were hung up for vital hours in front of Flesquieres. On the left the attack went better, being pushed forward astride the Canal du Nord to the Bopam Arras Road. But the advance, considerable though it was, had not gone so far and fast as had been hoped. The enemy brought up great masses of reserves and was able to hold the Manier line. No opportunity had been furnished the cavalry to break through, though. As has been previously noted, one squadron of the Fort Garry Horse actually crossed the Scheldt Canal. Nevertheless, the local success of the first two days was great. The attack reaching the line of the Scheldt, Canton, Anu, and Uerva. It is possible enough that left to his own judgment, Sir Julian Byng would have been content to consolidate this position, offering as it did a favorable line as a future jumping-off ground. But on November 23, Sir Douglas Haig, no doubt anxious to exploit as far as possible such a striking success, ordered that Burlon Wood be attacked from the south. The tired troops again went forward and stormed the wood. There followed five or six days' fighting of a ding-dong nature, with varying fortunes, during which the wood changed hands several times. We seized, but failed to hold the village of Fontaine Notre Dame, which then established itself a tactical feature of first importance to any force consolidating itself in Bourlon Wood. Every student of the war will remember the thrill of pride and hope of November 20, 1917, and the following days, how at last a ray of light seemed to have penetrated those dark months, how the news was hailed with joy in every Allied capital, and with corresponding foreboding in enemy countries, but how, after ten days' heroic effort, the storm broke upon the weary but devoted troops, when five or six fresh enemy divisions burst up the Banteau Valley, capturing Gonaloo and pushing into Guzacourt. Only the extraordinary gallantry and tenacity of some of the divisions engaged, especially the guards, the 2nd and the 47th and 56th divisions, prevented a disaster. These three divisions held the Burlong Wood Line against eight enemy divisions altogether, five in the frontal attack and three in reserve. They held on throughout the day. In some places the enemy drove in seven distinct attacks, but not one of them reached our main line, although forward posts changed hands. The great slaughter of the enemy suffered there was at that time regarded the most serious he had had in the war. As it turned out, the success, limited though it was, proved of very great strategic value at a critical time. The enemy was thrown out of his stride for the rest of the year. Tactically, too, the Third Army had the best of it. The Hindenburg line south of Mouers was not only captured but held. They suffered indeed 42,000 casualties in the fortnight's battle, losing 7,800 prisoners. But on the other hand, they inflicted casualties estimated at 80,000, capturing 11,000 prisoners and 170 guns. 
though against these must be set the 150 guns the enemy captured on November 30. But he used up in the battle 30 divisions against the 11 British divisions engaged, and many of these were either brought down from the north or deflected from Italy. Altogether disappointing as the final result might have been, the battle was a real victory. Had the Third Army been permitted to embark on it with the support requested, including the Canadian Corps, and at a time of year when the days were long, it is pretty certain that the highest expectations of Sir Julian Byng would have been realized. As it was, laboring under every disadvantage, the soundness of his tactical theory not only proved itself, but has served as the model for all future operations on the grand scale. End of Part 3, Chapter 2 Recording by James O'Connor, Randolph, Massachusetts, May 2010